We are in Luke chapter 4. We're beginning a new series for Advent called The Carols of Christmas. And our scripture this morning comes from Luke chapter 4. If you're in a pew Bible this morning, that's page 859. We're going to begin in verse 14 of Luke 4. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes in all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard, what we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zephyrath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah. And none of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up, and they drove him out of town, and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. You who have been here a while have probably heard me say this at other times when we come into seasons of the year like Easter or Advent, that they are special times for me. And part of the reason of that, much of the reason is that, is that I didn't grow up in the church. And so all of my growing up years, what I knew about Easter and most of what I knew about Christmas was very secular. It was hollow, really, on those days. Particularly, I remember Easter Sunday. Um, It would just be a hollow kind of day. There was something lacking, something missing. I felt the same at Christmas. And so it's special to be able to celebrate Christmas within the church and to have been able to do that these almost 40 years of ministry that I've had. But as I recollect back to when I first um, remember hearing the Christmas story, um, I did... I did hear it at times when I was growing up, and my first recollection of that would have been in my early grade school years. I would have been uh, somewhere before the, the third grade. I'm not sure exactly when this particular year was, but, but my memory of it is not in a church building, but it's in a schoolhouse. I grew up in a two-room schoolhouse. There was kindergarten through second grade was in one room, and then you shifted at third grade, and it was third through six. But those two rooms were in the upstairs of a building that in the basement was a gymnasium that 
that I remember being huge, and I'm sure it wasn't. But at the end of that gymnasium, there was a stage. And I remember one particular Christmas season that we had a play for our Christmas program at the school. And I played the part of the wise man in that play. I, I don't remember any of the other programs we had, but I do distinctly remember that program. I remember the story. It probably was one of the first times maybe that I ever heard Uh, the Christmas story. That's probably why there was such wonder about it and how that has such a special hold in my memory. I remember singing the Christmas carols that evening. I remember talking to the song about the wise men and all of those carols. And ever since that time that I now have been a pastor for these some 38 or 39 years, um, we sing the Christmas carols and we come to this kind of time of year, and I began to sing the Christmas carols, what I began to realize is that that those Christmas carols, the carols that you would find in this hymnal, are full of the gospel, are are just laden with the truth of the gospel, the banner that is on the, the wall and the one that you see in your bulletin, if it's easier to read some of that fine print, those lines that are there are going to be the outline of the series that we're going to have through Advent the truths that we're going to talk about, the Christmas truths that we're going to talk about in Advent. And all of them bleed scriptural truth, all five of them that we will walk through. And and that's the way it was when songs were written. They were written on the foundation of scripture and on the foundation of the gospel. So even though I didn't attend church for those 18 years, much at all, maybe a couple of times, I was surrounded by the gospel and yet blind to it. I I didn't understand it. I didn't comprehend it. When I read words like are on the banner, all sufficient merit, they were just in, in many ways empty words. I didn't understand what that meant and how that applied to Christ. And so our hope through this Christmas season is that we can lay some of those out. And maybe for you, it will all of a sudden make the Christmas carols take on new meaning and, and new strength as you sing them at Christmas time. I hope that you will catch yourself as we sing those, as we move through these weeks and the worship team leads us, that, that truth will begin to jump off the pages of the hymnal because they're grounded in the scriptures. That would be my hope through this season. Let me lay out a bit of that particular series of what's going to happen. The first four Sundays that we speak, we'll just move down those lines that are on that um, graphic that's in the bulletin or on the wall. We'll move from one line to the next to the next. The first four lines of that make up the first four messages that we will have. And then the fifth line is, is the final one that Pastor Jason will speak the Sunday following Christmas. And the way we will move through that is we will walk through these particular truths. The first truth is the truth we're going to talk about this morning, that the gospel, the message of Christ, the fact that his name will be Jesus and he will save his people from their sins is for all nations and all peoples. One day there will be people from every tribe and kindred and tongue worshiping together because this message is a global message, dear desire of every nation, the longing of every heart. And we'll talk about that this morning. Then we'll move to the fact that he was pleased as man with men to dwell. 
that Jesus became one of us, became a man and dwelt among us. And the, the beauty of the incarnation, the beauty that God didn't stay away from the brokenness, but he entered right into the mess of the brokenness with us. And then we'll talk about what he accomplished in that coming, that he becomes our all-sufficient merit, which comes right out of the carols. And then he's born to give them second birth. How that sufficient merit on week four can become ours. How we can appropriate it in our lives and how it becomes a reality to us. And then finally on the last Sunday, the whole idea that he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Joy to the world. I, I remember one of the first times that that song, all of a sudden, the idea that God comes to make his blessings known as far as the curse is found. What's the curse? The curse of sin. And one day, all of it will be gone. All of the curse will no longer plague us. Now, it is Christ has come the first time, and he's inaugurated his kingdom, and he's begun to come against the curse, but he will come again, and all of the curse will be gone. All of it that plagues us and pricks us and causes us to pray the kinds of things we prayed in our prayer time will no longer be there plaguing us and that brokenness. In my Sunday school class this morning, we, we talked a bit about about the fact that we are broken people. And, and even all of us here, even those who are in Christ, we're emotionally crippled people. Some of that crippledness, God has come and begun to heal, but it won't fully be healed until he comes again when the curse is fully removed from us. So I hope that you'll be with us for all of those messages or pick them up online as we move through it. But that's, that's the outline that we're headed in. That's the direction we're going. And I hope the carols will come alive to you because they're so filled with the truth of Scripture. This morning, I'd like you to look at the text now in Luke chapter 4. We want to begin there. And this particular series will go all over the place in various texts as we look at the truths that underlay these particular lines of the carols. But this morning, we come to Luke chapter 4. And this is the point and the place at which Jesus inaugurates his earthly ministry. This is where he launches things. He has just come out of the temptation experience where he was tempted severely for 40 days in the desert. And when he came out of that experience, he moved into Galilee. And the scripture says he moved into Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And what has happened preceding the moment that we're going to talk about when he entered the synagogue in Nazareth is that he had gone all around Galilee and performed mighty miracles. They'd they'd happened in various places where Jesus had been. And now he comes home. He comes home as the favored son that the people who are gathered in this synagogue have been anticipating his coming. They'd heard about what had gone on in the in the villages around them, in the places around them. And now Jesus comes and he's given a place of honor. He's to read from the scripture in the synagogue today. And so he comes to them and inaugurates his ministry. And, uh, and what he says and what he does here, in essence, is he declares amnesty. He gives the offer of amnesty in what he declares because in the moment that he's to read, the moment that he picks up the scroll, 
and certainly probably asked them for the scroll that he wanted to read at. And the scripture says that he, he goes through the scroll and he finds the place that he's going to read. And the words that he declares are these. The spirit of the Lord, in verse 18, is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the year of the Lord's amnesty. And again, that's a metaphorical kind of year. It's a season that's going to be an offer of amnesty. It's the season that we continue to be in today, some 2,000 years after it was read. But Jesus comes to declare, and Jesus comes as the king to declare, that amnesty is offered. That's really what he's saying here. It's interesting um, what must have happened in the, in the hearts of the people who were there listening. The, now, he comes as a favored son. They're all anticipating what he's going to say and what he's going to read and, and what's going to happen. And he picks up this text from Isaiah 61, they would have recognized that it came out of portions of Isaiah 58, but, but primarily out of Isaiah 61, and that he stops in the middle of a verse. He stops right in the middle of a verse. The first part of the verse is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But that's not where that verse ends, because it goes on to say, and the day of vengeance of our God. They would have caught that. You may not have caught that today, but they would have known that he left out half of that verse. And so all of a sudden, their curiosity is pricked. Why? Why does he stop there? They almost were going to help him finish it, and he stops. And again, it's because Jesus, at this point, is offering amnesty to the people. He's offering amnesty to the hearers there and to those who would hear afterwards. And for a moment, all is well. For a moment, the people um, initially are positive about their response. The scripture says that, that uh, th- they heard them in verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. But it didn't last very long. In fact, it goes right on here, and it says, and they said, is this not Joseph's son? And, and then it turned right there. It began to turn. Because Jesus says some things that deeply trouble the people. They go from saying these are gracious words to just a few minutes later wanting to push him off a cliff. Jesus says some things that don't totally register with the people. Part of it started when he said, and the day of vengeance of our God was left out. They, they like the first part of that. They like the, the good news of that idea that the Lord's favor is going to come, but their idea of the Lord's favor was greatly distorted. You see, their idea of the Lord's favor was to include really the second part of that verse. Not vengeance on them, but vengeance for them. In other words, these people, their idea of what the Lord's favor was, was for the Lord to come back and to avenge all of their enemies, to destroy all of the enemies. 
that they had pressing in upon these people, those that were oppressing them politically, the Romans and others who were coming against the Israeli, Israelite people. But he leaves out the verse. He leaves it out. He doesn't talk about it. You see, they didn't understand what the amnesty was. They didn't understand what Joseph understood, that his name would be Jesus and that he would save his people from their sins. What they really didn't understand is what their enemy really was. They thought their enemy was the oppression of the Romans, the oppression of those who had for years oppressed the Israelite people. And the evidence that they didn't know is in the reaction that they had, the reaction that came against Jesus. And they revealed their hearts. What, what happened, and we'll talk about the two stories that Jesus talks about here. For a minute, hold those. But jump over those two stories. He talks about the widow, and he talks about Naaman. And he uses those illustrations. And, and the reaction to those stories show what the need of the people really was. What gets revealed in this story is what Romans 8, 7 says to us. The sinful mind or heart of man is hostile to God. What they showed was their hostility to God. What they showed is that their greatest need was their sin when they came to want to push Jesus off of the cliff. Their joy was not in the coming of a Savior to save them from their sin. Their joy initially, their initial response that these are gracious words was they thought they had a conquering king coming to destroy their enemies. They really didn't understand what their enemy was. They didn't understand their enemy was their own sin. And so now he turns. Let me, let me look at this text. Let me look at it in the context of, of what we've laid out. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. The writer of the carols, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. That's what Jesus lays out to them. And he does it with two stories. Look at those stories with me. The first is a story about the prophet Elijah. It comes out of 1 Kings. You certainly can turn back to that if you want. It comes out of 1 Kings, and you'll find the text in 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 13. We're going to read in just a moment. But let me tell you the story. Elijah runs onto a woman who is picking up sticks. And this widow woman is picking up sticks for a fire because what she's going to do is cook a meal for herself and her son. And then in her own words, she says that we may eat it and die. In other words, she was going to cook the last of any kind of food she had for sustenance. And then she believed that she would die. And Elijah comes to her, and he says, don't do that, but do something else. First, he says this in verse 13, do not fear and go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. 
So the, the situation is she has just enough for herself and her son for their last meal. Elijah says, don't cook it for you, but cook it for me. And if you do it for me, you will have all the food you need until the drought lifts. And what does the woman do but do exactly what he said? And the truth of what Elijah the prophet has spoken happens. Now, the way that was set up by Jesus as he is in the temple, after he had read the amnesty declaration to the people and left out the verse that we talked about, the people come to him of the synagogue, and and though they don't say it, Jesus knows they're thinking it. This is Joseph's son. Who is he? And Jesus knows in their mind that what they're saying is, do a miracle. Do something to prove who you are. Do what you've done in Capernaum and other places of Galilee. Do that. And Jesus doesn't, but he tells this story. And this story is about a Gentile woman because it says there were other widows in Israel, but Jesus went to this widow, the widow that we find in the story, who was not a Gentile, or excuse me, was not a Jew, but was a Gentile. So he bypassed all of the widows of Israel to find a widow who's a Gentile. The people there knew the implications of that. They knew what Jesus was saying to them, that this this message that he brings is for all nations, all nations, not just for them. I'm not coming to do something for Israel here alone, and I'm not coming to do what you think as Israel I should do but I'm going to do something that can be for you and for all the nations. And he tells that story. And then he turns to another story. He turns to the story of Naaman. And you find that story over in 2 Kings as you go there. And Naaman was the commander of the army of the king of Syria. And Naaman um, acquired leprosy. And he didn't know what to do. And the king of Syria designed a plan that he would go to the king of Israel and and be presented there so the king of Israel could do something to help him. And the king of Israel thought at first that this was a ploy. It was some kind of military plot to overthrow Israel by the king of Syria. But in the midst of that, Elisha, not Elijah, but Elisha, intervenes in the situation. And he assures the king, it's okay, let Naaman come. And so Naaman comes, and this is what this story says. When And when Elisha, in verse 8, the man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. And verse seven says, but Naaman was angry and he went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leopard. Are not the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. So you see the setting. He, he comes 
He gets the word from Elisha. Elisha says to wash seven times in the Jordan River, and he's angry. He goes back to his people, and his people say to him, and his servants say to him, think about this again. If he would have told you to do something difficult, you would have done it. But he tells you to do something simple, and you refuse to do it. And so Naaman reconsiders, and he goes back, and he washes himself in the Jordan River seven times, and he's cleansed. He's cleansed of the leprosy. He's free of the leprosy. And again, the story is a story that bypasses Israel because it says in the account in the book of Luke, were there not many lepers in Israel? But Elijah chose, Elisha chose to go to Naaman, the commander of the Syrian army, a Gentile. So in both of these cases, Jesus tells the story of Gentiles. And what's the inference of that? Why why does he do that? Why does he tell those stories? He tells them to, to declare as he gives these words of amnesty and the Lord's favor, that this Lord's favor is for all the nations. All the nations it's to go to. And the people are angry because they don't see the need. They don't see God doing it the way they wanted him to do it. They don't see him coming and, and rescuing them as they thought they should be rescued. In essence, what they don't see is their sin. They don't see their sin. They, they certainly see the sin of the Gentile people, but that's not us. We don't have sin. And so Jesus just puts it in their face that, that their sin, and, and, and he comes to save people from their sin. He is the one who goes to all of the nations. And the second part of that, he is the desire of all the nations, and, and the one who saves and fulfills the longing of every heart. He fulfills the longing of every heart. And what's the longing there? The longing that's filled is the longing of those who see their sin. The longing of those who really know their sin. The reason he couldn't do anything in the synagogue in Nazareth is because the people didn't see their sin. They didn't see their need. They didn't know their need. But in both of these cases, the widow, she knew her need. She knew that if she gave the last of what she had, it was all that she had. There would be no more. She was bankrupt. And so she did what was asked of her to be done by the prophet Elijah. She believed what Elijah said, and God came to her. That's the picture, that that when we come to him in our need, we see our need, God will meet that need if the need is spiritual bankruptcy. The same in in the case of Naaman. As his people said to him, if if he'd have gone back because he'd been told to do a bunch of things, he would have done them. But then he would have thought he did it. But when he's told by Elisha to go and wash, to go and just trust what Elisha says and to do what Elisha says and, and not trust his own efforts to do something, God comes to him. And in both of those cases, that's the picture of the gospel. That's the picture of the amnesty that's offered. It's offered to all nations, 
but it's only offered to those who know their need and are willing to acknowledge their need, and their need is their sin. His name will be Jesus, and he will save the people from their sin. That's what the gospel message is all about. That's what the declaration is about. There's a story that is told uh, of a British church. Um, It was a British church. It was a very prestigious British church that had three mission churches under it, three different mission churches. Once a year, this particular prestigious British church would meet with these other three mission churches. They would get together. They would worship together. And they would take communion together as, as one church. On one particular Sunday, um, they were having this particular service. And, and at the altar that day, sitting at the altar or kneeling at the altar, was a Supreme Court justice. And beside him was a man who had been a former burglar. And in fact, he was a former burglar that this Supreme Court justice had sentenced to seven years in jail because of his burglary. But this particular burglar had been wonderfully converted to Christ. He had, he had seen the need of his sin and looked to Christ to be his savior. And he had been wonderfully converted to Christ. But he continued to be in the mission church. And so they knelt together, they received communion together, they were served together. And then following that particular time, the pastor and the, uh, the Supreme Court justice were making their way out of the church. And in that moment, as they were making their way out, the uh, Supreme Court justice turned to the pastor and he said, did you see who was kneeling beside me at the altar today? And a little bit of time passed. And the man went on to say, what a miracle of grace. What a miracle of grace this Supreme Court justice declared that was. Well, the pastor responding, thinking he knew what he was talking about, said, yes, that was a marvelous, a marvelous miracle of grace that we witnessed there. But then as they continued to walk, this Supreme Court justice realized that the pastor didn't understand really what he was saying. Because he replied to him, and, and in your comment, Pastor, to whom do you refer? And the pastor came back to him. I was referring to the burglar. I was referring to the man that was kneeling beside you and recounted his story of conversion. The Supreme Court justice stopped him. He stopped him in his tracks and he said, no, 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 Pastor, you don't understand. And this is what he said. He said, you see... It is not surprising that the burglar received God's grace when he left jail. He had nothing but a history of crime behind him. And when he understood Jesus could be his savior, he knew there was salvation and hope and joy for him. And he knew how much he needed that help. But look at me. I was taught from earliest infancies to live as a gentleman, that my word was to be my bond, that I was to say my prayers, go to church, take communion, and so on. I went through Oxford, obtained my degrees, was called to the bar, and eventually became a judge. I was sure that I was sure I was all I needed to be, though in fact I too was a sinner. Pastor, it was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive Christ. 
I'm the greater miracle. I'm the greater miracle. That's a picture, I think, of the story that Jesus finds himself in and the setting that Jesus finds himself there in Nazareth. Unfortunately, the outcome is different. You see, the the, the people that he came to speak to that day, the people that he made the offer of amnesty to, didn't realize that they needed the offer. They didn't realize that they needed that offer of amnesty. They didn't see any reason for it. They didn't understand their own sin. But then he recounts the story of the widow and of the, of the uh, Naaman, the leader of the Syrian army. And what he's portraying in both of those cases is that this offer is to the whole world, to all of the nations. And the prerequisite to accepting the amnesty is knowing that you need to. Knowing that you're at war with God. Knowing that your sin has caused enmity with him. Christmas is about Jesus who will save his people from their sins. Which is really Really the longing of every heart. Now that longing may go different places and try to be found other places, but the ultimate need of all men is that their sin be dealt with, that that there's a remedy for their sin and that Christ has come to be that remedy. This morning, I would just ask you as you enter into this season, Is that the foundation of Christmas for you? Is that the foundation of the coming of Christ for you? Do you know him as the the satisfaction of the longing of your heart and of your need of your sin? My prayer is that we will always be that kind of people, that we will always be the kind of people that that story talks about, the Supreme Court judge who knew who knew his sin and knew his need and looked to a Savior. Dear desire of every nation, the answer for every longing heart. Let's pray together. Father, I pray this morning that that you will help us right at the beginning of entering into Advent, right at the beginning of celebrating this Christmas season that, Lord, we'll start at the right place, that we'll start where we need to start, that we'll understand that the coming of Jesus is first and foremost about a need for us to accept an amnesty that's offered. Lord, I pray that we know the reality of that this morning. I pray that every heart in this room knows the reality of that. It's not not just something that has kind of a hopeful dimension to it in the sense that we hope we get it but but we've accepted it we have received that offer of amnesty you promised to to come to those who knew their poverty lord and would acknowledge it and so father i pray that that we will be that kind of a people in jesus name amen We're going to sing this morning in response. And uh, it talks about 
reasons to praise our God this morning. Let's stand and sing. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul. Worship His holy name. Sing like never before, oh my soul. Worship Your holy name. song again whatever may pass and whatever lies before Sing your praise unending Ten thousand years and then forevermore Bless the Lord, oh my soul Oh my soul Worship this holy name Sing like never before oh my soul I worship your holy name I worship your holy name I worship your holy name let me close with this and dismissed this morning. It's interesting at the close of that message or the close of that encounter Jesus had in the synagogue. This is what it says. And they rose up and they drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. 
response to Jesus of those people that day was not the one we want to have. There are two responses to the amnesty. One is the response of the widow, of Naaman and those that represent them. The second is just to show why we need to respond that way. Sinfulness of man. But the interesting part, it says in verse 30, but passing through their midst, he went away. It wasn't his time. He was in charge. He was in control. The offer of amnesty stood. And be fulfilled as we walk through this Advent season by what Jesus would do and ultimately die on the cross. I hope you know the reality of that work for you.